Hello and welcome to episode two of the EIU Throws podcast. This is your host and coach of the throws at Eastern Illinois University, Noah Castle. Today we have a very special guest and my college coach, fantastic storyteller, all-time great of cleaning 110 kilos while in jeans and a polo, Andrew Nino, uh, currently the throws coach at the University of Washington. We discuss a ton of topics today, um, going over great stories from our time together um, when I was competing for him uh, at the University of Kentucky, talk about his roots as a thrower at UCLA, being able to compete for a legend of the game in Art Venegas, um, his challenges in recruiting um, at his different stops, recruiting to institutions with very high academic standards in Stanford and the University of Washington, his philosophy on developing athletes as people and as students, um, how to make an awesome impact um, when you get to a job, whether that be your first job, second job, third job, how to get somewhere and affect your athletes right away, and kind of his philosophy on developing throwers. Um, how do you train them uh, to become the best that they can be and kind of laying out the vision for them and developing them to be first team All-Americans, Olympians, conference champions. This is really a guy that's been able to do it all um, in every single throws event. So really happy uh, that we could have him on, and I hope you guys enjoy. All right, today I'm joined by Andrew Nino, throws coach at the University of Washington. Um, coach Nino is in his fourth stop um, on the coaching trail going from San Francisco to Stanford to Kentucky um, and now to Seattle uh, at the University of Washington. Thanks for joining us, Coach. Yeah, thanks for having me, Noah. Yeah, no problem. Um, so I guess we'll just start out kind of um, at college. Um, you attended UCLA where you were a beast uh, hammer thrower. Oh, yeah, um, So yeah, just kind of talk about that being under a legend of the game in Art Venegas. Um, what was it like being a part of what is historically like one of the greatest throws programs uh, ever? Yeah, I think what was so nice about that was it was such a, a culture of athletes who were just 100% all in. Like they all want to be fantastic throwers and like number one on their list of things they want to do was throw. Mm -hmm. And so I think being around a bunch of guys who like think that way is like it's a good place to kind of start like your college, you know, for me it was like post community college, like college career. Um, and so I think we had like, I think one year we had like 14 male throwers on the team. So it was like a really big team, different personalities, different skill levels. And so like, there was like a place for each person to kind of fit in and have like their role. So, um, and then I think you realize too, it was like, um, you know, for me coming from like community college where I was pretty dominant to like call, like you kind of, you know, I was a big fish in a small pond you go to like, it's a very big pond. And I, I realized I'm pretty, I'm a pretty small fish. You know, you go there, there's, there's three guys, and then, and then this is early 2000s, so like, I think there were three guys over, you know, 18 meters in the shot, but which wasn't as common as it was, and it is now. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, you kind of go like, okay, well, I'm definitely not a shot thrower anymore. I'm not a discus thrower anymore. Like, I'm a hammer thrower. Like, that's what I'm going to be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think being around art, like, his, his wealth of knowledge and experience and stories and just that whole environment is really good. Um, yeah, so I think it was like a, a great culture to like be in and kind of take a lot of that and, and use it, you know, in my coaching career. Yeah, so kind of building off of that, what lessons did you take um, from that culture and being around um, arguably one of the best coaches ever in the throws um, to your first job at San Francisco? Yeah, so I think there's there's kind of two things 
you know, when I look back on it, like the two things that really make that program special. And the one is like art, you know, he's secretly like a giant nerd and like reads books and like mm -hmm. all his old video. And like, if you get him in a room with somebody he wants to know information about, like he'll get the information out of him. So yeah. like, he's just really good at like acquiring information and then applying it to like, what he wants to do. So for me, I feel like he taught you the the basics, like the things that have to happen in the throw, like in the shot and the disc and the hammer and the like, the things that you have to do to be successful. And then, uh, but a lot of what we did there was like self-learning. So um, in the sense that he kind of like told you, hey, you got to fix this. And he didn't give you this 20, you know, drill repertoire to figure out how to do it. It was like, he might give you a few bones with some drills, but the most part, it was us, you know, while he's coaching discus or coaching, you know, shot put, you know, me and the hammer guys are trying to figure out how he, what he wants us to do. And so I think it was a lot of like introspective and like, you know, trying to feel things out and like coaching each other. And that's kind of something I think it's a little bit lost now. Like we're always trying to like just find like this next drill or next answer or next YouTube video that's going to show me how to do it. And the reality is like the best way to learn is like just to figure it out, like to sit there and contemplate and figure it out. So by not giving us the answers right away, we had become little like little coaches mm -hmm. and, and coach each other and help us out. And um, so I think that's kind of like two really important things. And when you, when you learn that way, it sticks. Like when you learn something that you had to kind of grind through, like it definitely sticks with you a lot better. Mm -hmm. So I think he was just like really good at kind of like, here's what's important. And then, you know, having the faith in us to figure it out. And I think that's really important. So, you know, of course he has like all these different drills and things that would help, but that's kind of one thing I've kind of learned. If you look at all the coaches that kind of come from this program, like they're all different. Like no one really yeah. coaches the same stuff. Nobody really has the same philosophy or the same um, coaching style. Like they're all like, they're not mini arts. Like they just took like the basics of what he taught and then have all gone their different ways because they were developing that personality while being an athlete underneath them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of interesting is like all of the coaches are very different from each other and they have different kind of strands of the technique they teach, but the basics of them are all there from his program. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of what, what's unique about that program was like, yeah. we're all, we all, we all became coaches. Yeah. I mean, definitely one of the largest and probably most productive coaching trees um, spanning many tons of years um, and all over the, all over the country and what they've done, I think, that's something that's fascinating because I hear a lot of people talk about um, art and that he is like puts everybody into the system and plug and play. Um, and I always think that's something that kind of gets lost um, and something that we talked a lot about when you were at Kentucky is there's really basics to the throw, certain things that are essential, but then the rest is really filling in the blanks with the athletes. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where Stanford was so influential for me was you know, I think at UCLA or most major power five universities, especially with like a big population in state, so you can kind of pick the people. So like, if you're really good at teaching a particular system or you have a system that you think works really well or quickly or gets results, whatever it might be, um, then you're trying to find people who fit your system. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's kind of a self-selecting thing. So yeah, people say, oh yeah, he was plug and play. But I think for Art, it was more so like he was just finding um, he had kind of a way he liked coaching, a particular athlete he liked, 
and uh, a certain system that worked well with those athletes. And so that's, I think that's why people thought, oh, he's a systems person. No, no, he just found the right athlete and the right coaching tools that kind of helped develop something quickly. But if you like look later on, like his, you know, I imagine he went from UCLA, like the OTC, he was teaching way different stuff than what he probably taught in college because the athletes he was getting were coming from different systems. So he wasn't rigid in one little way. He definitely was more flexible, but he was selecting athletes to kind of fit what he wanted to do. So anyway, so kind of going to like Stanford was I couldn't pick the athletes I wanted. Yeah. Like the university selected it for you. Like here's the academic standards. Cool. There's four dudes in the country who are good enough to like throw in the Pac-12 and can get into the university. So like, I hope I get two of them. And that was kind of what, so you end up getting like very different athletes. So I had, you know, Jeff Tabor's a great, he's 5'11". Um, he was a, a great discus throw, like 210 in high school, but completely undersized. He never cracked 230, uh, like with, with his body mass. Like he just was a, a light, very explosive, small dude. And then, you know, when I first got there, there was a guy named Daniel Scherer, who was like 6'5 and super loose and like this technician. Yeah, you know, so you have these very different body types, huge different backgrounds. And so like, you can't plug them into like, oh, you're going to do this. Yeah. And it's like, no, like, in order to kind of coach those athletes, I had to change what we were going to do. So like Jeff Tabor had a completely different de technique than Daniel Scherer. And they both threw it in, you know, a, a few meters of each other. Um, and so I think what was nice about Stanford was like, it really kind of expanded my horizons on like, okay, like there's different styles and there's different things we can and can't do. And we just maximize the athlete versus like forcing the athlete to fit a system. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that was a big step for me that kind of helped me evolve quite a bit. Yeah. So let's talk about Stanford a little bit. Um, first of all, how do you go about getting that Stanford job? Um, very young coach. Uh, making the jump to Power Five, obviously a very prestigious school. Um, just kind of tell the background about that. Yeah, so like I think in the moment I didn't realize how unique it was to make that jump, you know. But obviously, like the more you're in the business, like there's a lot of due pain for 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 most people, and I definitely skipped the big chunk of that. Um, so yeah, so I think I think the first step is it's art. You know, art is super influential. There's tons of different athletes from his tree of coaching have had a ton of success so he was pretty influential on in that so um, when I was finishing up at UCLA um, he was Stanford job was already open so I was I was trying to get it while like finishing my degree and whatever and um, and basically it didn't happen and kind of like a fun quick little story is like so I graduate my wife actually gets a job in the Bay Area and we move up there and like the next day I, I put a suit on and I thought the job was still available. I literally just went into like the office at Stanford and was like, Hey, I'm here to interview for this job, which is ridiculous. Like looking back on it now, but I was just like a naive, like 23 year old kid who wanted to work. I got to be a coach. Right. So I literally popped in and they had hired um, a guy named uh, Kevin McMahon, like a couple weeks before that. So like the job was filled. They just hadn't posted it yet. I was like, Hey, I'm sorry. Like, you know, the job's already filled. Like, okay, it's cool. So I left. And try to like try to volunteer a few places i'm like no and then mm -hmm. it just so happened like the university of san francisco had just started a program it was like two years old i think it was and um so i was gonna try and volunteer there and uh it ended up like the assistant job opened up and it paid like twenty thousand yeah. dollars a year in san francisco which 
could 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 buy you like a spot next to a bum on the street, like yeah. at, at zero at zero money <laughs> in that in that area. Um, and so and so I worked there for for that that rest of that year, and um, and at the same time was working at a biotech company. So I got my degree in biochemistry. So mm-hmm. that really helped me. If I didn't have that, I don't think I'd be able to bridge that gap. So I was married too, so it's like yeah. you know just being a bum and just living off my wife's income was not an option. So, um, so like, you know, I had like assistant coaching job and I had like another like part-time job and I kind of looking back. Um, and I, it's funny cause like, it's such a fond memory. Like like, I'm so exciting. I'm a coach. I'm like coaching athletes. Like, you know, no one was particularly like, you you wouldn't go and brag about them, but like, it was fun. Like we were developing and doing my own thing and recruiting and all this, but we were living in like in a, in a suburb. So I would wake up. So, and they didn't have their own track stadium. Mm-hmm. And so you had to train on the public track, which was in like the, it, it's the equivalent of central park in New York. It's yeah. called like Kizar stadium. It's just like a public track. And so we'd have to go there in the morning because otherwise it'd be, it'd get full and you, you can't throw with people on the field. Yeah. So, um, and so we, I think I woke up like at, in the five o'clock hour every day, took a subway into into downtown San Francisco, then took a bus from there to like the city. And I get there like at like seven o'clock, I would hop in the 15 seater van, we'd pop the kids in and we'd practice from like 7.30 to like 9.30, 10. And I did that every day for like eight months and I loved it. And it's kind of like looking back on it, I was like, I was 16 hours straight. <laughs> yeah. and it, but it didn't feel like it, I was having yeah. fun. You know? And it wasn't even all coaching. I was on coaching for half the day. Yeah. You know, I was, the other half that was, was basically, you know, helping out this lab do all this stuff so um but yeah so like i said but it was fun it was exciting it was new it was different and then what happened was um pick kevin mcmahon decided it kind of wasn't the right fit for him uh, he was trying to be a, a a teacher at a private school in the area as mm-hmm. well as be a full-time coach at stanford you know the more your p1 coach you realize how impossible that is to balance yeah. those two things so he realized it wasn't this wasn't for him and so the job opened up again and art like calls up flows hey man like, you gotta you gotta give this guy a chance give him an interview like you won't regret it so basically i'm i'm, I'm still 23 years old and i get an interview and i you know i think uh, he was at the olympic trials and i give him a call and uh, we set up and he's like yeah like you know um let's do this time next week you know and he's like hey you know give, give me like a five-year plan i was like, okay cool so again kind of like so i go home and i write like a 25 page thing about like my five-year <laughs> plan for stanford and my philosophies and like, I, I like will it down to like 13 pages. Yeah. I literally, I have a copy of it still. And it's like, it's, I, I went to Kinko's, I printed out, I bind it. I put like a little cover on it. I have like 10 copies. And like in my interview, I'm literally handing out this thing to like the assistant <laughs> coaches and the associate AD. And like, Here you go, it's my plan, that's what I'm gonna do. You know, and I think it was just like that, like that over eagerness and, um, and kind of like this nerdy guy who's planning stuff. I think it kind of helped. Um, yeah, I think being overprepared is the best, best yeah. thing for an interview. That's kind of what happened. So I just, I interviewed really well. I fit in with the group pretty well. I think they were impressed with kind of my eagerness and my, my stuff. And I think obviously my background with the art and him kind of constantly vouching for me was, was a huge, a huge part of it. So, um, so yeah, it was kind of a funny way to get to that first job yeah. and a lot of things lined up that, like, to make it happen. Um, and yeah, and the rest is kind of history. So, but I think the important part is like, 
yeah, I didn't pay dues for a long time, but I did do some like kind of weird stuff for like <laughs> months <laughs> where if I wasn't willing to do that, then you weren't going to be a coach. And I think yeah. for some, you just got to realize like, you know, I think my, my good friend Muhammad um, over at, at, at Cal, you know, I think he was at this point, he must've been close to 30 years old. He, he'd been like, you know, in, in, in the, um, in the trenches, you know, dig, you know, at NAU trying to make a name for himself and was doing great stuff and developing some great people. And I remember because like it was my first NCs and I had like, you know, I think four athletes or five athletes there and uh, we're sitting like in the coaches, like, um, like, uh, what do you call it? Like where you just get, you get your food and your drinks. Hospitality. Out. Hospitality. Yeah. And yeah. so Muhammad's like, Hey man, so uh, how's Stanford? I was like, Oh, it's, you know, it's going pretty good. Have a fun time. He's like, yeah. He's like, yeah, I, I applied for that. Never heard back. Not one thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's like, he's like this jack off 23 year old kid got the Stanford gig and here I am like eight years into my career and like you know I hadn't gotten my chance yet so I remember kind of like that was kind of my first like oh like I kind of made a jump that that most people don't get to do and to be kind of a little more grateful for how for how far I'd come so um those guys, I'm not sure if Muhammad even remembers that but I remember him kind of being like who are you, man? What the heck? Like, how that? <laughs> you know, and uh, so it's just kind of like a funny story that like how things happen sometimes. But yeah, and now like, you know, he's he's doing amazing things like Cal and yeah. had the Hammer Champion last year. And um, it's too bad that, you know, the end season happened in Nordau because I think, you know, I think this kid had a really good chance to win the shot put this year. Yeah. So um, yeah. So anyway, so that's kind of like a, a fun little background story of how it all started. Unreal. For those of you that haven't caught on yet, um, Nino is probably the biggest nerd I've ever met in my life. Uh, <laughs> loves just doing all sorts of weird things. Very interesting person. Um, no story probably exemplifies it better than that. Um, yeah. So talk about, um, like you said, pay your dues for a little bit. You end up at Stanford. Um, didn't have too bad of a first year. Uh, took four people to NCAAs in year one uh, at Stanford, yeah. year two total of coaching. Talk about that. How was, what was that ride like of just having an insanely successful uh, year in your first year at Stanford? Yeah, I think what helped, like the kids at Stanford is good people. You know, like they want to work hard. And the ones, I think I was lucky to kind of jump into a group who was really motivated. Mm-hmm. Like they, they all had like kind of big goals and wanted to achieve, you know, big things. I think it really helped. And again, kind of having the background of the art, like I knew the basics of what was going to make people successful. And I think kind of having that background was, it made it easy to transition. Cause like, I wasn't giving them bad information. Like I was giving them good information and maybe I wasn't like, I didn't have the depth of experience set to kind of like make those tweaks really quickly, but like the message was consistent and we're, they were getting, you know, good improvement. So I think it helped. And that really, I think kind of boosted confidence as a coach is like, people made these improvements. And I think the, the funniest one was like, uh, again, like my discus guy, Daniel Scherer, like he had redshirted his fourth year and was planning on like doing this fifth year. He had no, like no part of it. It was yeah. like this, this guy is coming in. He's, he, doesn't, he wasn't even a discus thrower. I was like, a, you know, it's a hammer guy. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to teach this guy to like basically be a better discus thrower. Um, so yeah, it was kind of some funny moments with that, of course, because like I was literally like, a, like less than a, like a year older than this yeah. guy. Um, but he was great. He was gracious. Like it took time for us to kind of figure things out. You know, I, I think it was a rough transition at first, but like toward the end of the year, like we kind of got on the same page. And I think a lot of it in the beginning, 
was more so like agreeing on what to work on mm-hmm. versus like, you know, I think I've kind of kept that through my career. So I'm not like much of like a my way or highway guy. I've always been very like open to like listening to my athletes. Like, what do they feel? What do they think? That kind of thing. And then I think, you know, if you can kind of have that communication and like work together towards something, like if they're as bought in as you are on something, then you could be more successful than like, if they just don't believe what you're saying and like, you're just yeah. butting heads, like they're not going to commit to what you're coaching. They're just going to like start nodding their head and go, yeah, of course, coach. Like, yeah, get, get more left. And they're like, screw that guy. I'm pulling in. You know? So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so unless you kind of build that relationship, I think you have a hard time like mm-hmm. being successful. So yeah, so I think I kind of did a good job of that. I wasn't like, I didn't have this huge ego on my head. Like I just was trying to like make them better and work, work with them. I think in the beginning mm-hmm. versus like coming there and be like, this way this way that way and and i think with a stanford kid that would never work anyways like yeah. they're, they're thinkers they have to know why like they're not going to gonna listen to somebody they've been taught not to listen they've been taught to like listen but like think critically about what they're being told versus yeah. just like yeah of course um but yeah so yeah it was it was a very fun first year for sure and uh <laughs> i think the other thing funny too was like recruiting like i remember recruiting and like at Anna Gelmini, I'm not sure if you know that name, but she was like this phenomenal discus thrower in high school at this point. I think she'd thrown like 185 as a junior in the discus. And um, and like, I was just so intimidated to call these recruits. You know, I was like so, I was so tiny, like removed from high school at that point, you know, like, and um, I remember like, I got like this, like, like Edric gave me the stack of like folders and like, here's the recruits so you should give them a call. And I think I, I didn't call you for like two days. And I was like, what do I say? Like, how do I start this conversation? And kind of looking back on like how intimidating the recruiting stuff was and talking to like big time recruits. And then, you know, now it's like, you don't hesitate to call anybody. Like you just, oh yeah, pick up the phone, call somebody. Yeah. So, you know, it's all those little funny things you remember, like things were new and different and some things were very intimidating and some things you were pretty naive to. So it's just kind of an interesting time. Yeah, so obviously um, you're definitely like a planner. Somebody has um, a set out vision for what you're trying to to achieve. So how is it kind of meshing that with Stanford? Because like you said, obviously your pool of athletes is much, much smaller than pretty much everybody else's. So how do you kind of mesh that vision of your circumstance while also getting people who you think will be successful at Stanford? So as far as like, how do I set up my plan for them or how, like, how do I like recruit for them? Uh, both. So like getting them to campus and then once they get there, how do you make sure that, you know, at a high academic institution, like your University of Washington is also kind of a, a similar situation. Yeah. How do you balance, um, you know, that through recruiting and then also when they get to campus? Yeah. So I think um, with the recruiting thing, especially with the men at Stanford, it was hard because like, there's just so few talented men that could like get in and that were like good. So you just basically like, you just basically recruited everybody who get into the school and then try to like work it out from there. So I, th- I think the recruiting part was like, I, and it kind of, you know, Stanford kind of sells itself and you know, there were, you were going to get two athletes no matter what, because if, if they were smart enough and then knew kind of like the value of like Stanford, then like, they, they were coming. It's just a matter of like figuring out the details. Yeah. And then there were just like, there were just kids that were more athletically minded and thought it'd be like a hindrance to their success to be at such an academic institution. And if they already kind of came in with that like notion, like it was almost impossible to like disprove it. Cause like, it was funny. Cause like, I remember I was doing recruiting. There was like 55 Olympians at like 
the 2008 Olympics yeah. from Stanford, like the most Olympians of any university. And, but it didn't matter how much you sold that. Like if they were convinced that like the Afghan was going to hurt their athletics, like they just, it wasn't like the right mesh for them. So yeah, I, so I think it kind of, as much as you would think you would make the difference in recruiting there, I don't think like the coach wasn't always the big difference. Like you were kind of selling the institution, you were selling like uh, the, the kind of, cause like of, of the, Ivies and Stanford and those type of schools. It's definitely the most athletically minded that has the most ability to be a good athlete with most competitive uh, surroundings with that. So I think that, that kind of is just a matter of like building a relationship and having them feel comfortable and, and doing that. Whereas I think, um, and as far as like having success with them at, like once you're a coach, I think one is like, yeah, realize like their, their priority one isn't necessarily track mm -hmm. like their identity is more with like their academics and like so like they identify as an engineer first and, a, and an athlete second and this, i think not being offended by that i think is like number one like realize like like they have important goals outside of um of athletics and like taking an interest in that was important so like talk about hey i was you know engineering class or how was your jet you know jet engine class like things like that and then, um, and then being flexible in your schedule, like you weren't going to have them all there at one o'clock and then I could leave at five, like it wasn't never going to happen. So, you know, we had practices as early as 9am and I was there, you know, until five. So it was like being flexible and realizing like, if, if, if you like valued them as the entire person versus just the athlete, like you were going to have success. So I think that was kind of like the main thing um, was, yeah, like that, like valuing the whole person, not just the athlete. And when you did that, then like, it was easy to work together and uh yeah but that's a big part you got flexibility because like and it's, it's, a, it's a small private school it was like six thousand undergraduate students i think it was like five and a half it's like really small so like the class selection isn't exactly like totally robust like there's you know math 126 there's one section there's yeah. one lecture like they have to take it at that time so it kind of like a little funny thing on that there were two academic advisors at that time for the entire department <laughs> Like the entire department, football, like two, they had two advisors. So it kind of give you like a little like sense of like how different things were there. Yeah. That's insane. I can't imagine trying to handle scheduling um, yeah. for hundreds of athletes, uh, just been those two, especially under the academic demands. Yeah, but, but, they, but they had a counselor from their dorm. They had a counselor for their major and then they had an athlete. So they had like, they had lots of support in that, yeah. in that realm. So, and they're just very independent learners. Like they're going to figure yeah. out their schedule. Yeah. You didn't have to hold their hand to sign up for class. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have yeah. definitely had to do that here. So if any of my guys are listening, make sure we finish fall registration, <laughs> please. Um, yeah. But um, so, yeah, I mean, let's talk, I guess from there, let's skip to kind of uh, the javelin success you had there. So back-to-back -back years of NCAA runners up, uh, two different mm -hmm. athletes, right, on the women's side. Um, yeah. It how was, did that uh, come about? Uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of that my javelin success is the most interesting. I think isn't I, I try to dissect why, and um, so one, I you know, I, I it's, it's the event I knew the least about for sure. Mm -hmm. And my first couple of years at Stanford, I was able to have a couple of athletes um, where I was kind of like basically able to experiment with really because like. And I was doing, I was like getting stuff from different people and like different lectures and trying to learn about javelin and like develop kind of like what has to happen and different, different training techniques and med ball and this and that. So the first two years I kind of like 
ability to kind of like experiment and I had a couple of athletes to kind of like try and work things out with and figure it out. And then I was pretty fortunate. My third year, um, there was a, a, an athlete named Etta Harrison from Harvard and she had double majored like in, I think it was math and econ at Harvard. It's a really, really bright girl. Yeah. And she had gotten into the equivalent of the MBA for engineering at at uh, Stanford mm-hmm. on her own without like, and of course on her own, we can't help them get into yeah. any of the grad programs anyways. So she was like, Hey, like, you know, I threw, she threw like 155 or four, like her sophomore year at Harvard that she had a little fallen out with the coach and like hadn't thrown her junior or senior year and was like, Hey, like, I like to throw again and this and that, you know, is there any scholarship? Like, yeah. So we had to be able to get a little bit of scholarship. Cause I think it went that on like 155 was like definitely mid pack in, in our conference. So like mm-hmm. if somebody's going to give us conference points and, and so anyway, so, but she had kind of like, she was just starving to be like, an athlete because she had missed it so bad for those last two years yeah. and she had a pretty good background on kind of the javelin and she was very like a vocal like she would talk about like training or how things were going that kind of stuff so anyways but so I was like okay I, so I, I, I at that point I had kind of like this idea of what I wanted to do and I kind of I pump it in and we start doing this different med ball workouts and different you know um you know, different flexibility stuff and technique and this and that. So she ends up having this really big improvement. She goes from like 154 to like 174, like in, in one year. And um, it was interesting with her too, is like halfway through the year, she's like, coach, I can't throw twice a week. And like, you know, we throw like an easy day and a hard day. And she just like, my her shoulder was like, you know, every week I had more tape on it. You know, she's just like blown up. And so we went to like, we were just like, okay, well, like, let's figure out what you can do. So basically if we, if there was meets back to back, she wouldn't even throw between those meets. We'd, she'd compete, and then, like, we just, like, do drills and med ball, and, like, she might pick one day, and I'd be about it. Yeah. And if you had a weekend off, she would, like, we'd, she would toss it, but, like, it wouldn't be more than, like, 40 meters. Like, it wouldn't be over one. Like, she would never put a throw over 140. So it was all just, like, super light, almost just letting it go kind of stuff. And it was, like, my first introduction to, like, wow, John's different than, like, hammer or shot. <laughs> yeah. like, you just can't, like, like, this girl's, like, she's not throwing for two weeks essentially and then would hit like 160 and it's like okay this is different so she hits like 50 meters first time that was like a huge moment for her because like and you know she's from croatia it's like me it's all about meters like she hits 50 meters like oh my gosh and she freaked out it was awesome and and uh, yeah so just she just kept getting a little better she actually had i think she had like a throw close to 55 meters at pack 12s and it landed flat which is my biggest pet peeves in track and field (laughs) is like the women's jab, just the way they're balanced, like they just don't always land tip first. Like they kind of land flat. But as long as they don't go like tail head, it's fair. And they mark it foul. And that was, that was, would have been like this record at the moment. But anyway, so we kind of apply this. I learned that like, okay, like being healthy is way more important than javelin than any other factor. So like just being healthy is like so critical. Um, so yeah, I learned a ton from that year. And then, so she throws like, 170 she PRs at NCs in a left-handed wind and breaks the school record you know uh, gets second awesome awesome experience and uh and then the following year I had, I had a job for her from Oregon come in and uh she she had a like, hit 163 or four in high school like one time and had like most remarks were like 53 or lower so she was basically like had a really good arm 
um, but just positions were bad. So anyway, so we got like, okay, I think if they're sent out with this with this girl before, like let's apply the same thing to her. Same thing happened. She ends up throwing like PRs like one, like almost 180 at, or no, hit like 180 at NCs, get second. So like, oh cool, I think I got an idea of how this this javelin thing works. But I think what was what was kind of important about it was I didn't bring my own bias into what I thought javelin should be. Mm-hmm. So I think like when you're just you know when you when you coach your own event you have this very strong bias of like how you think it should feel or how you think it should go. And I think it's hard as a coach to like separate yourself from that feeling or that, like that, that identity of how you think hammer is, for example, mm-hmm. you know, javelin, I was like a, a blank slate. I didn't have any biases of how I thought javelin should be. So I was really open to like how they felt it. I was really open to new ideas. I was really open to kind of teaching it differently and not necessarily differently because I didn't have any bias whatsoever. <laughs> so I think it like, it, it really helped me learn lots of different things mm-hmm. and then apply it and then like make a decision based on that athlete, if it's working or not. Um, so I think that's kind of what, why that helped. And of course, like, you know, getting, you know, good athletes, be good coaches. And like, you know, Edda was a great athlete who like wanted to be good. Like Brianna was a very driven javelin for And after I left, she won three more Pac-12. She was like the first athlete in like 12 years and then javelin to win four consecutive Pac-12 titles. Like you know, she was a really good, you know, javelin thrower and was mm-hmm. competitive. And then you hop over to Kentucky, you know, I get Ray, you know, Brianna was the highest finishing female javelin thrower in the country. She got second. And Ray was the highest freshman. He got he got second his freshman year and do like seventy four meters. Um, so yeah, so then it was just like applying, you know, just constantly learning. So I think in the jab, even to this day, I don't. I'm always you know taking new ideas and trying different things. And yeah. I think the the base of what we do is you know three cores. What we do is pretty much set, but that twenty five percent is you know constantly changing. I think two is so I've had let's see so Brianna, Etta, Ray. Um, denim and marta right i think that's all my oh and i i mean I, I would throw um even like sarah sarah blake in there as well i mean she got two two-time second team all-american and she was a walk-on and her first yeah. two years got second team <laughs> yeah was yeah, very so, love the girl very bad when she showed up the javelin she was yeah, yeah. extremely <laughs> robbed. One of my favorite memories regarding Sarah is we're at Arizona, um, our freshman year on our spring break trip, and she throws, or maybe it was sophomore year. Anyway, she throws first time over 50 meters, and they read off the tape, and Nino goes, no way. Are you sure? <laughs> and, what, <laughs> and we all look around like, what are you saying, dude? He goes, no way, that's the mark. Are you sure that she threw that far? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I'm asking the ref that, by the way, not, not Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> it, was like, it was like, a, it was cool. It was a night meet. It was that night. Yeah. And the, the throw looked good, but like, I didn't think it was that you know, special, obviously. <laughs> and uh, yeah, my, my initial reaction wasn't very like supportive. <laughs> uh yeah but no she was awesome man and, but my kind of point going back so I'm, you know that's six different people who have gotten either first or second female american none of them were coached the same way like they all got their different ways like different techniques different feels different rhythms you know the training was different ray could throw a thousand times a week you know and etta couldn't throw once a week so like you have to kind of be, and that javelin really teaches that. Like you have to be pretty flexible. 
And I think in jab too, like there's more stylistic differences between the throwers. There's, and I, I have fewer covenants. So covenants being like things that have to happen. I think there's not as many of them in javelin. And so it kind of in, allows a lot of interpretation and different movements. And so the javelin, you have to learn to be flexible with the technique. There's no one way to throw it for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of been, and that, that's been fun. I think being like the javelins helped me coach with other events too. Cause like, yeah. I think you realize, oh, at first, like, oh, the javelin's unique. You got to be a whole athlete. You got to jump. You got to run. You got to do gymnastics. You got to be flexible. And then it's kind of like, wait a second. I think all the events probably need those things too. Yeah. So I think, you know, we've done a lot more gymnastics and different like athletic type stuff with our throwers um, in the last few years for sure. Yeah. So I'm uh, kind of jumping off from Stanford um, there for four years, had a couple um, other All-Americans as well, obviously, um, jumping over to the University of Kentucky. Um, Across the country, West Coast guy, uh, for pretty much your whole life, what was it like adjusting to the SEC, um, obviously different academic Stanford coming from, or standard coming from Stanford? Um, what was it like walking in uh, to Lexington? Yeah, it was, it was fun. It was, it was something different, something new. You know, obviously Stanford and Kentucky, I think, are, are quite different culturally. Mm -hmm. They're different from, like, that, like, the different kind of athletes you're getting in. I think the biggest difference – there's two, two big differences. One, like the competitiveness of the SEC is pretty unique. The, the amount of money in it because of football is pretty unique. And then lastly, like the athletes definitely like, like they see themselves as an athlete first. Mm -hmm. And so like their identity is very much wrapped up in their, their throwing. Mm -hmm. And so like if the throwing is going bad, like they're not feeling good. Whereas like you might have other things that pick athletes up at Stanford, like at Kentucky, it was like everything revolved around being an athlete and maximizing that so it definitely was a much more like a focused um intensity in that respect and what was what was interesting was when we when we got there um this was the year before the whole you know the the conference mergers and like expansions mm -hmm. so like when i was like when i spent that time at um ucla and stanford um this sec was always like the top three or four like three kids in the in the field events and throws were like really good so top three were always really good and then like four five through eight it, it got soft pretty quick so like you would often see like people throwing like 1650 or 17 meters and like getting you know scoring at conference and so i was initially excited like cool let's go there we're going to develop or like let's develop these people we're going to like you know, get a bunch of mid-pack finishers and we'll build a program and kind of long-term get those national kids. And and so, like, that was kind of like the thought process at first was, like, kind of get a bigger team because at Stanford, we had, like, 115 people. So our first, like, philosophy at first was trying to get a big team. So, like, we try to get a big team at first and try and, like, develop and get a bunch of, like, get a, get a bunch of those mid-pack finishes and, of course, balance up with some, like, elite athletes. And, um, and what happened though was like so a and and missouri joined the conference so what happened was a and is like obviously if you follow track as a dominant track and field team and obviously they're really good in the sprints and the sec is always known for the sprints so we added like another huge sprint powerhouse into the conference and what kind of happened was like the sprints became so competitive that like putting more and more money into it didn't make sense for a lot of other teams. So now like all this investment kind of started to leak into the other event areas. And so like the, and mostly like, I would say like the multis, um, uh, the throws, and uh, I would say like the pole vault high jump 
uh, they started getting a big boost. So like, um, so now you had like, you had more teams competing for the same number of spot, spots at conference. And we since you had a, a, a powerhouse team in A&M come in, it kind of forced some of these other sprint schools to kind of diversify a bit more. And you just had like, there's also just like kind of some turnover of coaches. So Edric comes in and kind of raises up the level. Um, you know, Al Alabama hires Dan Waters and like they, they raise their level. A&M comes, raises their level. Um, there's a couple of movements, you know, John Smith comes into Ole Miss, boom, throws powerhouse right away, you know. So like things changed and like Petros comes into Georgia and like they were already really good and got even better. So like the SEC went from like kind of like, oh, like mid-pack, you can maybe get in there. So like, nope, like what, what? The, what what's that last year with Nick? It took 1885, got eighth. Yeah, 1889 for one point. It was stupid. It was ridiculous. Like, and it, you got to realize, like, when I was coming into the coaching profession in, in 0809, like, then uh, to get into NCs, which was top, they had, they had an auto mark. But it, was, it was basically, it was top 16. The 16th mark was like 1840. 1850 so if you were a mid-18 guy like you were going to the nationals yeah and if you're a mid-18 guy you were getting top three at the at the conference and also in like mid-18 now is like you're just forgotten you're nobody yeah and and so like things change so like basically have and you said with, with our team we went to like we tried to get a big team and by the time we'd left we had what 31 women and 29 guys that so we had we, we, we could barely fill the in the the roster maximum for the conference mm -hmm. but that's what we required like it went from like a quantity thing to like a quality thing mm -hmm. um so that was kind of interesting because like uh, the i think the stanford model is much the same which is like they try and get as many of those bright kids in as possible and develop and i think you know the sec because it got so deep and so competitive and then you got was like as a new coach comes in they probably getting paid more money than the previous coach. There's a higher expectation on them to perform, and so like they just it just constantly kind of raised the level. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're like, yeah, when we're leaving, you know, Sarah Sarah Blake, she PRs her sophomore year. She throws uh, 54 meters, I think it was. Mm -hmm. It was her PR at the time, and the javelin got fifth. It was fifth. <laughs> so it was 177. It gets fifth place. It was like, what is like what's happening here? And they're like looking it up, like because like track and field news keeps like the best mark for place ever. So like, what's the best? What's the best mark ever to get fifth place in the in the NCs? And it turned out like that what she got for fifth at SECs was about what the best mark ever was for fifth at nationals. So like the 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 and then I think that was a year like it was Rebecca Wales and you had uh, Maria from Florida. And basically, like, I think the top two at SECs were top two at nationals or something like that. Like, it was just, it was just stupid, like, how, how competitive it got. So, yeah, I think that was, like, you had to raise your level. Like, that's why I definitely raised level on, like, recruiting, you know, trying to get all these, these big dogs, like, at least, yeah, at least come for a visit. You know, that's, that's kind of, as a coach, you just got to give them a visit. Like, you're, you got to realize, like, if they're a big dog and they visit five big dog universities, and you want to take an even percentage, that means you have a 20% chance of getting them. Yeah. So you got to bring in five big dogs and hope that one decides to come. So like, you know, just getting one to come is not enough. So like for me, it was like just trying to get as many people to visit that were good as possible and, and hopefully, you know, trying to get them to, to come. And then, you know, yourself, 
you know, I think I never let go of that model of like picking, I think, you know, high potential people that could get into the school. So no, it was one of those high potential kids. That's right. You didn't think he was a shot putter until I got to him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what kind of talk, talk about that. Cause actually I talked with, uh, another one of my former teammates and then I was former athletes, Dave Klein, uh, earlier today. Uh, Dave was a <laughs> 57 foot shot putter, I think. Um, mm -hmm. obviously very talented guy but ends up being a 66-meter hammer thrower, um, throws 2040-something, 2046-99. Yeah, school record holder in the weight throw. Um, but yeah. lost in that shuffle is he showed up as a 40-meter hammer thrower. Um, he was, was terrible. Horrible. <laughs> Almost gets cut from the team, um, if you want to tell that yeah. story. Uh, yeah, so, so David comes in. He's like third or fourth generation Kentucky, like, his dad had gone, his grandpa had gone to it. So um, anyway, so he, uh, <laughs> so he wants to walk on. He was like a 53 guy, I think his junior year and ends up gliding 57. So I was like, oh, cool. He's, he's like six, five, he's a big dude too. Like yeah. he's not, it's not small frame. So we, we try, he comes and we, we try learning like rotational shot. And it's just like, it does, he's a stiff, like he just hasn't like no elasticity <laughs> whatsoever. And like, like, well, I guess he's not going to be a shot putter. And like, we just try this hammer thing out. And he had like done some like footwork stuff a lot with like a coach before he came. And so he was kind of locked into like a couple of things when he first got, but you know, he just was super hard worker, super diligent, great attitude. And like everyone liked Dave, you know, but yeah, I think after that entire year, he throws like, I think he hit 46 meters like yeah. at the very last meet of the year, which is, you know, and, you know, at the time the hammer wasn't what it was in the SEC. I think, you know, 55, 56 was scoring mm -hmm. um, or 57 like at the meet itself. And so I was like, uh, like I'm not sure if I want to like keep coaching a 46 meter <laughs> guy. You know, I might, I'm like kind of betting, should I cut him? Should I keep him? I don't know. I'm like, you know, he's a really hard worker. He's a really good influence. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so like, so like that was kind of like the the thing. I was like, oh, you know, he'll get better. And like, you know, maybe it might, he might not score next year. Maybe in two years he'll score in the hammer or something like that, you know? So, but yeah, but in true Dave form, he goes home. He, I didn't tell him he was going to get cut. I said, yeah, hey, I'll see you next year, man. And like, he just go home and he just practiced, man. He went home and found a field to throw into. And he, he came back and like the very first meet throws like 57 meters. You know, like he didn't prove like 13 meters in, you know, six months, whatever it was. So, um, so yeah. So, yeah. And I, you know, I think Dave was kind of a testament to like consistent growth. Yeah. Um, and never, I never, no one really called, I called him the glacier. Cause like he just constantly like slightly moved forward all the time. And like, if you, you, it'd be hard to notice it unless you took a film of him like every four months, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he just always got a little bit better all the time. And um, so I think, yeah, I realize that sometimes and it's just, you just got to put the work in and be consistent. You know, the, the results in this just don't come quickly, but yeah, Dave was just a good example of someone who just like was consistent showed up worked hard and um yeah and ended up having a great career and I, and we had a lot of fun with dave you know and went from hardly talking to <laughs> to being a little more vocal towards yeah. the end there <laughs> yeah and i think a couple of things kind of going back to that story about dave being a great influence on culture is i think about my own career um the summer that a lot of us spent together um in between what would have been my junior and senior year 
um, or I'm sorry, sophomore and junior year. Uh, Dave was a relentless workout partner, and I almost wanted to get in a fist fight with him every single day because he would do the old, uh, would change my weight while I wasn't looking um, and make it go up more. <laughs> and then I would be on the brink of failure. He'd be like, yeah, I bumped you up 10 pounds. Like, you were just being soft. I'm like, dude, like, are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, we're doing like five by five for squats. And he's like, yeah, dude, like, you, you could do 20 more pounds. Like, I, I knew it the whole time. So I think he was yeah. an awesome, like, influence for me personally in my own career and then obviously the leader on the team and then the other thing I kind of want to talk about with that is your view of development I look at um, whether it was at Stanford Kentucky um, Washington you come in and people jump 10 12 15 20 feet in one year and then just continue to expand growth how do you kind of assess um, an athlete when they show up on campus and how do you kind of visualize the development process yeah, so I think it kind of goes back to like what uh, earlier, but there's covenants, there's things that I or think that I think, and I, I think have proven themselves over the years that are really important. And you just have to be a stickler for them. I think it's so easy to kind of like pass off on something and kind of go the next thing or like work on some stylistic thing with your, with your wind up or whatever it might be. But just realize like there's, there's just really important fundamental things that need to happen that always help that if an athlete does this, they will throw further. Yeah. And so I think a lot of coaching, and this is like the worst part about coaching actually, is like you might have to coach the same thing for six months. Yeah. And that's that's like horrible to think about. Like, oh, I'm going to teach this person to stop their left foot <laughs> for the <an> entire year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and so you, you got you to gotta have, gotta have like a, a stubbornness to like, want to fix certain things and at the same time like be patient to help them get there at the same time so i think that's like like the hardest thing as a coach is like because it's just like okay screw it like you can't figure this out let's move on to something else but that something else won't be as productive as the thing that you've identified as the most important so like and there's but there's also like a cutoff point and um where some people just can't fix some things yeah and so at some point, like if, if you're working on them for some for like, you know, a few weeks and like they're making progress, then cool, like let's keep pushing this and try and get it better. But like I think there's some athletes who just can't do some stuff. And at some point you also gotta cut your losses, which is like they're not gonna make this better. So like let's just get it to a point that is acceptable where it won't mess them up, but you might not take advantage of what you could do, but like it's just a neutral position. And then work on something they can change. So it's kind of like a balance between like, what can this athlete change? What's really important? And then finding like the, the Venn diagram of those two options. Like yeah. what, can they, what can they change as an athlete? What is really important to do? And then wherever that crosses over, like work on that and hit it and be patient and just keep focused and stay on it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, too, it's really easy to kind of get ADD and move on to the next thing, move yeah. on to the next thing, move on to the next thing. So I think that's kind of really what it is because like I, I, I laugh because like when I work with work on when I work on with Andrew Evans, I work on with my beginner discus thrower that aren't that much different. Like yeah. it's just like the detail of how I want it completed is different, but it's still working on a wider sweep. And so it's not like that anything we're working on is mind-blowingly complicated. Like I'm not doing rocket science. It's just trying to make something as good as it possibly can be. And I know that helps the, the, the throw go further. Yeah. Um, 
So I think I, I kind of looking back, I think that's what it is when I jump into a program. Cause I've done that a couple of times now where like, you know, I went to Kentucky, boom, people got a lot better. Went to Stanford, boom, people got a lot better. You know, came to, came to you know, Washington. I know these numbers more off the top of my head, but like, yeah, Joe Jonah went from uh, 1760 to 1960. He proved two meters in the shot put. You know, Elijah improved uh, four and a half meters in the discus. And, um, you know, Angel went from 14 to, uh, she's a shot putter, 1460 or 70 to 1580 in the shot put. And, um, you know, Denim, my javelin guy, goes from 67 to 74 or 7360, you know, in one year. And uh, another jab guy went from, you know, 62 to 66, 80 or 90, whatever it was. So I think it was like, okay, like, you know, if, if you, if you kind of have a, a good sense of what really helps to throw and then just stick to it, <laughs> then they'll get better. But I think that thing is what it boils down to is like, don't, don't be so rushed to like fix the next thing. Like make sure what you're working on it, that you're the base of what you know works is fixed, then move on to the next step. And then also cut your losses, which is kind of weird. Like, you know, that's hypocritical to say at the same time, right? Yeah. Like stick to it, but, but then cut your losses. Yeah. But I think as you get older as a coach, you kind of like learn where that, that cutoff point is. It's just experience. Um, so yeah, like, like Angel, my shot putter, like she's never ever going to stop her left foot in the back of the ring. She's never going to do it. And so we've just moved on to different things. I think, you know, that we get that good enough and then we move on to other things. So you just have to know when to move on. But yeah. have the core things you believe in and make sure they are core things. And I the way you're going to figure that out is, is talk to other coaches, you know, read things online, look at video, um, and try and find those things that correlate from one athlete to the next. That is a pretty consistent trend of these things happening. Yeah, I think um, another classic Nino quote, um, one day while I was training at the University of Kentucky um, with Nino as my coach, I asked him, hey, coach, like, what makes me good? Like, I'm not... I'm kind of interested to like hear about this. <laughs> and he goes, well, Noah, you're not really good at anything. You're just kind of not bad at anything either. <laughs> I was like, huh, okay, that makes sense. Like he was right. I wasn't an elite jumper, elite lifter. Technique was solid, um, could move, okay. Like, and I think there's yeah. something to be said about that where kind of like the left foot in the back of the ring. Is it important? Absolutely. But if an athlete's not picking it up after a long time, as long as it's not a major deficiency within the throw, mm -hmm. you can kind of move on to, you know, whether you're moving from back to middle or something in the middle um, or something at the front that might be a little bit more effective instead of trying to hammer stopping the left foot for a year and a half. Yeah. I think it's, it's the simple law of diminishing returns, which is like doing something, you're going to get a lot of return on getting something 75% right. If it's three quarters, right. You're getting, so much return but the difference between getting it 75 percent right and 100 percent right isn't isn't as much diff as um distance as getting it from half right to three quarters mm -hmm. so like if you got everything three quarters right you'd be a really good thrower if you have two things 100 percent right and four things that are 20 percent right you're going to be not good so you know they're 
getting something completely perfect isn't isn't necessary either. Mm -hmm. um, it's just getting getting a lot of things mostly right, mm -hmm. which sounds like so um, <laughs> like low bar, right? Like it's yeah. mediocre. Like be mediocre at ten things, you know. Yeah. But when you break your throw down that way, um, it, you end up getting a lot of things right because like the other thing too is like everything builds on each other. So like if you're doing 10 things right, you're making the other things easier to make right. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like, whereas yeah. like if you do some terrible things in the back of the ring, good luck trying to make that good in the middle and the front. Like, yeah. you're not, it's not gonna happen. It's, you're making your life more difficult. Mm -hmm. So the more things you make good, not necessarily great, but good, the easier it is to make things excellent because they all kind of like build on each other. That's actually a new thought I've had right now. That's a, that's a new gem. Um, but kind of coming, like, harken back to that, like, being good at a lot of different things. It, I, it, it kind of comes from, I was reading uh, Steve Backley. He was, like, a 90-meter thrower from, from England. And he was in the era of Zalesny. So, like, Zalesny was, you know, the most dominant yeah. jab for, like, of all time. And definitely was back then. So, Steve, like, goes to train with Zelezny. He's going to learn Zelezny's secret. What's his secret to throwing so far? How can you do all these different things? And, he, and in, you know, long story short, he basically said, it's not that he was this superhuman at one thing or the other, or what the, not singular, the secret. He just was good at everything. Like he did jumping really well. He lifted well. He was flexible. He had good technique. He had a good block. He had like, there were a hundred different components of his throw and he was good at all of them. He wasn't, he was probably uniquely gifted in a few of them, mm -hmm. but really it was just like, Oh wow. Like he does everything. Well, his warm-up drills are great. His ball throws are great. His med ball throws are solid. Like when he does gymnastics, he does things properly. So like, you know, it's all those, all those little things really start adding up over time mm -hmm. and they're, they're, they're cumulative. So like, don't be like, okay uh, i'm really good at hitting the front of the ring so i'm gonna work on my stand throw for a year and now i'll make yeah. it the best it's like if you kind of take things to like their ultimate conclusion right if, if being just really good at one thing makes you a good thrower does that make sense like just being really good at the finish oh probably not you know yeah. but being really good at a lot of things okay that sounds like might be you know a pretty good thrower if you do that yeah so i think um We'll kind of jump off from there. So obviously Kentucky, a ton of success. I think it was nine first team All Americans. Sounds yeah. Right. Uh, you would you would know better. Um, yeah. <laughs> talent, but I'm not a I'm not a yeah, I, think, I think it was roughly somewhere <laughs> in there. Yeah, I think what I was happy with is we had uh, a conference champ in the you know Becky got a conference champ in the weight throw and the hammer. Mm -hmm. You know we had um, Andrew won in the discus. Brad won the shot put. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, obviously Ray won the javelin. So I think what's kind of cool is like we got an SEC champ in like every event area. So I, I think what I like too is like there was a, there was good depth. Like I think we were kind of successful in, in all the different yeah. areas, which was, which was fun. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, Andrew throwing 66 meters. Um, yeah, top it was a good day. five discus throw. It was on my birthday, by the way. <laughs> really? I didn't know that. <laughs> what a great birthday present for you. How, yeah. how insane is that coaching someone? um to that elite of a level obviously 2016 olympian um what what does that feel like it's it's it feels good you know and i i think what's interesting is the more like big accomplishments i have i think when you're younger you think oh if i can just get a guy to throw 20 meters like that'll be it i made it 
Like I'll, I'll be so happy and you're happy in that moment, but it doesn't like, you're not like forever change. Like, Ooh, I got Andrew to throw 66 meters. Like I'm forever going to be happy because he did that. Yeah. And I think what I kind of realized, like it's really the, the process of getting there. That's more fun. Mm-hmm. I think than, than the actual like achievement. Um, so yeah, like it felt great. And I think what's interesting too is like, um, <laughs> what's interesting is I, I would even say like at the moment what, what he was doing technically, like he did a lot of things like well, but he was still like, there was so much growth there available. And I, I would argue there's throwers who throw below 60 meters who are technically more accomplished than Andrew. So it was like a lot of it too is like, and then there's, a, there's an extra difficulty in, in getting somebody really talented to do what you want them to do. Yeah. <laughs> because the more talented, and I call it the conundrum of talent, which is like the more talented you are, the more you're actually kind of guarded to change because like you've had all this success doing this. Like, why would I change? Like, why would I do something different than what I've done before to throw so far? So like, um, you know, getting somebody who knows they're not physically impressive to change technique is easy because they know they have to get better at technique to throw far. Getting somebody who's a freak athlete and Andrew Evans is a freak athlete to change something is hard because you have to convince him that it will make him better. Because he's like, you know, because that year before he threw 66, he had thrown 6350, you know, and, and he actually has in that track and field news, he has the best mark for third place ever. He, he threw 6350 and got third, which is, again, lame, because yeah. if he thrown that the year before, he would have won. So, or two years before. But anyways, um, so kind of like not to diminish what he accomplished, but it's like, yeah, like, he's not necessarily like the perfect technical model to throw 66 meters. Mm-hmm. He probably had a lot more stuff to improve, but you know he comes in with the, this physical ability that's pretty unique as well. And then you got to give him credit because like he actually started to change. Like Andrew was a very successful. I started coaching. He had already been an All American. He got I think seventh at, at NCC before, and he always kind of self taught himself and was very much a guy who kind of like very introspective and has very good feel. So for him, like making believing like to kind of like give up some of that control to another coach was hard so i you know you got to give credit for somebody who's freakishly talented and already successful to kind of make some changes to be a better athlete and so yeah so i think what's kind of funny is like sometimes we like to equate like distance with like perfection but it's not really the case it's just it's it's su- supreme talent with with really solid technique yeah and but they're not necessarily like the like perfect model of like discus throwing so you know I, I i could argue like throwers you don't know about probably achieved better technique than mm-hmm. than andrew um but i think realize too is you know the goal isn't necessarily to have like perfect technique is great but like you know throwing 66 is better yeah it's pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like it, it goes back to like the mission return thing which is like if you if you want to if you spend all year just working out your positions and your technique, right? And I'm, by technique, I mean like, let's say like your actual positions, like the angles and the positions of your foot and your chest and your left hand, okay. Well, there's also this component called rhythm and timing, mm-hmm. right? So like, if you neglect those two components to be in the perfect position, you, you still won't throw far. And then if you focus too much time on that and not enough on the weight room, you won't have the power to throw far. So like, being a perfect technical model isn't necessarily the goal. It's it's marrying technique, rhythm, 
timing, confidence, um, a kind of like a mental state, uh, weight room jumping, flexibility, you know, all these things interrelate with each other and, and focusing too much on one or the other sacrifices the, the other ones. So like throwing 66 isn't having perfect technique, it's having, it's maximizing all these different areas. And if you need to go see a sports psychologist for an hour a day, and that takes away from something else, but it helps you compete, well, then you're a better, you're a better thrower. You might not, you, you could argue, someone could keep the, main, the same technique for three years. And if they improved, you know, their, their rhythm and confidence and the weight room numbers, they would throw farther. Yeah. So like, and someone, someone from the outside who's like, you know, these YouTube critiques and be like, oh, look at this guy hasn't changed in three years. He's terrible. Yeah. This guy's not making any. If he did what I said, he'd throw further. It's like, well, you don't know what he's been doing for three years. Yeah. Maybe he realized that like the gains and technique were becoming difficult and he had a lot of areas that he could actually improve on a lot more. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the armchair coaches, you know, it's, I've tried to refrain as much. I think as a younger coach, it's easy to do. Yeah. I think we're idealistic. Yeah. <laughs> and then as you get older, you realize like, oh, there's a lot other factors that lead to someone being successful that you got to kind of focus on yeah and I think that's another thing that's interesting too I think looking back on my personal experience at Kentucky you know we had myself who was pretty average in a lot of areas and then you have somebody like Charles Lenford who's an absolute powerhouse um mm -hmm. and you know the year we have um you know multiple guys uh, above and around 19 meters um all three did it very different ways and you look at kind of the jav crew we had there um, with Elijah Marta coming off shoulder surgery, could barely throw uh, once a month, let alone <laughs> twice a week. Um, so navigating all of those, I think, really takes like an individual, an individuality to the programming. Um, so I guess, how do you kind of go about that? How do you obviously not sacrifice the mentality of the group, but also find kind of what works for each individual athlete? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the percentage is, but I think, you know, uh, going back to kind of like those core basics of like, of what you think works to throw far, like you got to make sure everyone's working on those. Right. So like the, the foundations of what makes them throw far are all the same. Um, and then it's just kind of finding with each athlete kind of what they like more or what that makes them feel good or what, some little stylistic difference in the back of the ring that helps them get on balance better or gives them confidence. So I think that's where I was like, like you kind of, kind of got to build your program and know like, okay, I, I'm going to, you know, the, this on the block is important. This in the back is important. This kind of work in the middle of the ring is important. And like just sticking to those and knowing that that is true for everybody. And then it's kind of finding out, okay, like all the different cues or different arm positions or like, how they think about the throw or you maybe you got to change a little bit like for me personally i think you know when you tuck the left leg i like when the left heel comes up high and, and comes back down but i have athletes when they do that if they get way off balance or they don't like it or it, it ruins their rhythm and so for them it's like okay now we're not going to do that we're going to do more about a passive or a lower left foot or whatever it might be so i think it's you got to have things that you know like and that maybe that's like kind of okay so let's say there's like a base things that you have that have to be done you have that you have to punch the shot flat and you got to have a good block okay cool all right you you have a, a a lot of your program built on that and then you have like 
maybe there's three or four different things in the middle of the ring. Oh, I have a left arm. And that's a good example, like in, in the yeah. front of the ring. Some people are kind of like more passive with it and focus more like on extension. Some want to slam that left arm and get some big stretch off the chest. Some finish a little more down and up through it. Some finish more level with a more arch. Okay, so there's there's four different ways now to approach that left arm, mm -hmm. right? And is it, it, now you got to figure out, okay, which is, is there one of these that fits this athlete better? And then, okay, then you marry that. To them. Okay, well, then how's that affect the middle or the back of the ring or vice versa? If you do something yeah. in the back of the ring, how's that going to affect the front? So you got to have like, your, your base core of work, boom, you have to, you have to do this and we're going to do this, you know, good stand throws, good blocking, good balance in the back of the ring, get on the left foot, that kind of, that kind of stuff. And then you got to have all these like things that like, you know, there's probably four different ways to do this and five different ways to do that, that you, that you believe in and know how to coach. And then you got to kind of like find each athlete's path through those technical things and kind of just, and marry them. So I think that's why you see, if, if you kind of look at throwers, from a program and just kind of like see them peripherally, right? Don't like study, but kind of look at them. They all kind of look the same. And then if you kind of break them down, you'll, you'll start seeing the differences. So I think in a good program, the athletes kind of look like, if you just kind of look on the surface, they look very similar. Mm -hmm. But then when you dive down, you realize like, oh, like they're starting differently or like they're doing this differently or that differently. And I think you, like, I mean, you, Nick, and and Charles are a perfect example of like three pretty different ways to throw over 19 meters. Yeah. You know, you know, Charles was much, I mean, immense lower body strength. So like yeah. he started from a much lower position and that helped him feel grounded. Uh, Nick had a lot of injury issues and groin issues. And so like he actually had a, a taller start with different, different elements to his throw. Mm -hmm. um, and you're kind of like, I would call it kind of like the neutral party. You kind of like, <laughs> you weren't too low, weren't too high. You know, I think the the way you swept and worked your left arm was was probably like one big thing for you that kind of helped you throw far. Um, yeah. So, anyways, this is I think that think that's where you know the majority of your work will be on stuff that you know works. Mm -hmm. And then when you coach athletes, you're just going to give them different cues based on kind of what path you think will help them be yeah. the best thrower. Yeah. Um, so I think that's where it changes. And then, uh, then it kind of goes into like special exercises. Like I know I have some, I have some athletes that love stand throws and some of them don't. Like um, there's people who have never thrown stand throws that have thrown really far. People who, have, who focus a ton on stand throws who have thrown far. It's not like either one is better than the other, but we talked earlier about an athlete like loving what they're doing mm -hmm. and believing in it. That's a big part of it. So like if, if your kid loves stand throws, give, give them a program of stand throws and adjust other things. Yeah. <laughs> like, cause if they believe that helps them and that, and there's proof in the world that someone has been focused on stand throws and it helps them throw, then do it. Like, why would you take that away from them? Yeah. So I think that's where those differences come in. Whereas like some athletes think stand throws are the worst, most worthless thing ever. So yeah, then do a bunch of non-reverse and reverse work and doing that instead. Like that's their extra work. Um, so I think that's kind of where as a coach, you got to kind of like go get ego too. Oh, this is the way to throw far. No, no. Like there's lots of different ways and, you know, listening to your athletes and finding things that they believe in and want to do is just as important as being right. Who, who, who cares about being right? Just, yeah. if, they, if they throw far, you win. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I know we definitely all love throwing the 24 um, that one year. So. <laughs> Stand thrower, yeah. So, thanks a ton for that. We super, oh, yeah. super enjoyed that. Um, 
Yeah, but you guys, it's actually a perfect example. And I was like, oh, I think we're going to do some super specific heavy uh, standard with, with the 24 pound. I mean, I bought a 28 for heaven's sake. It's like a 155 <laughs> millimeter, 28 pound shot, but you guys hated it. You guys didn't like it at all. Yeah. I mean, we ended up scrapping it because it was yeah. like, I think there'd be some benefit if someone liked doing it, but you guys didn't yeah. like doing it. So it was just a bunch of wissy throws. <laughs> no, we got after it a couple of times. It was, it was good yeah. for like that competing and like that fall when you don't get to compete yeah. much, just be like, oh, we're going to take a 24 and just like, hammer it and see who can throw yeah. 10 meters and, and it came from brad zipka brad zipka would bring a a 35 pound ball like like the, for the weight yeah he'd bring that to the meet and he'd do stand throws with it on the side and, and he did that before he won sec he threw like 19 yeah. whatever 1960 whatever it was and he he loved it like he just like oh i feel like i'm so strong and the ball feels so light so yeah he'd take this <laughs> <laughs> monstrous weight and, he, and he'd be doing stand actually a funny story and that he almost killed des bryant with that thing we had like we're going we're going to we're going to nationals you're going to nationals and you know and she's like des was like she had run like what 2204 or something stupid yeah. like that in college i mean she's ridiculously good and um and but she's a small petite woman she's not very like not very big yeah so brad he had like this bus it's one of those smaller like commuter buses and like you know on the top it has like the little shelves to store stuff but it doesn't have like a door to close it's like those like yeah. two little thin bungee cords <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that are meant to stop your sweater from sliding yeah. out you know and he puts his dang 30 pound ball up on top of there <laughs> and as soon as the bus takes the first turn it just rolls off, and I swear it missed Des by like one inch, and just comes and hits the ground. And we're just like, what? "Brad, what are you doing? What are you doing, man?" So, anyways, so yeah, so he he loved it. He loved throwing that ridiculously heavy thing for like just to feel strong. Yeah. So I was like, "Oh, let's try this with these guys." And you guys are like, "This is stupid." Yeah, hey, but if it works, it works, man. I can't argue with the results. <laughs> yeah, yeah um so yeah let's jump to washington now i mean been there this is year two um yeah kind of unceremoniously ended um <laughs> have had a, a lot of success already last year um going into this year i think that the group was really really primed for a huge outdoor season um yeah. kind of talk about what it's been like um going back to the west coast um and how the experience so far has been yeah, it's been great. I think, you know, um, a lot like Stanford, the kids here, they're just good kids. Like, they come from good families and work, good work ethics. And that made, that made the transition really easy because they were just, they, what do we want to do, coach, and eager to learn. And I think it helped, like, you know, being an older coach now and having a lot of different, you know, accolades that kind of point to, you know, when they read the press release, like, oh, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. So I think that <laughs> made things easier um you know the older you get the less convincing you have to do yeah. <laughs> because you have luckily have some experience and some some stuff you can kind of point to so yeah i think that transition was was pretty easy um but it, it, it's kind of like stafford a little bit in the sense that you know they're, they're definitely pretty academic a good chunk of them are you know in, in finance or engineering and so like having that flexible schedule so i think a lot of it kind of harkens back to to stanford where you know, be flexible with your schedule, and you know, there's a lot of talk. I, I think one 
one practice we talked about taxes for like literally like an hour and a half while they were like <laughs> while they were doing their it was our Wednesday practice. It was a little more low key technique kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So um but yeah, so like that's kinda like I think like I enjoy that, which I guess is the nerd part of it, but yeah. um I think they enjoy that too. It's like, oh coach likes to talk about more than just track. So yeah. Um so yeah, I think that's kind of a very common with Stanford, but at the same time I think a lot like Kentucky, there's a little more of like there's definitely like more identity of their identity is wrapped up in, in throwing where like, mm-hmm. this is something that's really important for them. And well, by the way, that's like for my walk-ons or for my elite guys, like Jonah, Elijah, like they, they, they just live and breathe like track. And this is like something that's really important for them. So yes. I think it's a really good marriage between, between the two. Like you're getting like a really good academic experience. And like I said, Washington on the, on a lot of the world rankings is, you know, top 10, top 15, whatever. It might yeah. be. But at the same time, like, um, you're, you're around a lot of athletes who are just very ambitious and have big goals and, and, you know, can, can, you, you can have both, you know, like you have to choose one or the <laughs> yeah. other. So, um, you know, if you can, yeah. So I think it's, uh, that's been fun. Um, like I love the area. Like I love mountains, like mm-hmm. just from my personal standpoint, like being so close to hiking and all these, these are just beautiful, these beautiful areas and the price you pay is a, is a little more, uh, consistent rainfall maybe between November and, and February um, but you know we have a, a nice 300 meter indoor track which is just awesome to have that facility because you never it doesn't matter what the weather is like you always have someone to train and get your work in and um, so yeah so I think it's, it's, a, it's a really good spot where like the the administration is super supportive like the head coaches here are are fantastic and they're, they're great to work with and are ambitious they're both from Oregon I've you know, been there for you know 14 years before they mm-hmm. came here, so like they kind of know how to win and and um, and are kind of bringing that mentality here. And I think we have a lot to sell. Like there's a lot of just really good things going for here. And if you want to be you know an accomplished athlete and have something you know to really shine in your um, professional career afterwards, whether that's throwing or whether that's being an engineer or you know a teacher doesn't matter but um so yeah i think it's a really good marriage a lot of and you know it's in seattle so it's like there's definitely tons of entertainment and lots of different you know things to do and places to hang out so it's 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 a fun place and it's um has a college town feel at times like the area but at the same time you're in this this big metropolitan area with you know amazon and and microsoft headquarters so yeah um yeah so it's definitely a fun place fun place to be yeah certainly envious of you uh at times getting to live it up out there but our lifestyles are a little different uh yeah being a family man these days um <laughs> yeah so i guess um you're obviously building something i uh, already have something really special there um continuing to build on that what are you looking for um and somebody who's interested in throwing at the university of washington what makes a good thrower um for you and for the university yeah, so you know, the, the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that like passion for the sport and just kind of like want like that thirst of like wanting to know more or wanting to get coaching or whatever it might be, like that's something like I really hone in on now because mm-hmm. like if you don't if you don't this this sport's tough because you you compete so little. So if you think about it, like in the in a given year, you might have what twelve competitions. Yeah. And let's say that you have, let's say you're lucky and you make finals at each one of those. So that means in the given year, you're going to have, what, 72 throws, mm-hmm. competition throws. 
Um, how many throws do you take in a week, Noah? Uh, a lot more than 72. I remember <laughs> yeah. uh, some practices of more than 72. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's kind of the point is like, you know, you're going to have, you know, let's say you practice, you know, 40, 45 weeks. Let's say, let's say 40 times five. So you have 200 practice sessions in a given year. Yeah. And you're going to have, you know, 70 throws that actually count for that entire year. So you're going to do a lot of training a lot of technique, a lot of lifting with very little actual competition time and very little ones that actually matter. Like you only have four, like conference and nationals are basically it. I guess you can count regionals, you know, as well. So yeah. there's really only, you know, four, three or four competitions a year that actually matter. Mm -hmm. And you're going to do, you know, it's so different than like baseball or football where like every game has a big meaning, like win or lose. And like that win or loss, like has a big effect where like a lot of our season is like getting ready for these big competitions. Um, so if you don't have that passion and just like that ability to grind for a long period of time, knowing that like your reward is not even in the season because for, especially for throwers or versus a developmental a sport, your payout might be in three years. Like yeah. you might freshman year, just kind of learn sophomore year. Maybe you make a final and score a couple conference points, which is a, which is a great accomplishment itself, but it's not reaching the pinnacle. And then the yeah. third year you might get the nationals and be able to mix it up. So you got to have a really long term focus and that, and passion is the only thing that's going to carry you through that. If you're just like, Oh, I want to win. Well, I hope you don't, hope you plan on like not winning for three years yeah. <laughs> because, and, and that can sustain you you know so if, if, if that's what drives you you're gonna have a hard time being successful mm -hmm. so i people who just love the competition they end up they end up drying out because they're yeah. not willing to put the work in between the years so yeah. um yeah i think just like everything else like we're looking at for me i, I kind of like well-balanced athletes who do multiple sports who have um a body of work that tells me they're a good athlete and that they're a good listener and have their passion. So yeah. like, like, especially I like what I like too, when athletes have options, when it's like, I could do football here, or I could do basketball there, but I love track and I want to do track. And I think yeah. maybe like you and Nicole are actually great examples of that. Where like you had options Like you could have gone to like a smaller D one for football and Nicole could have done the same thing for basketball, but it's like, no, I want to do track. Like I love track. Yeah. So I think, and what, some kids that have options like that and just like go, nope, like I'm going to be an, an, a thrower. And that, that, that just proves me like you have that, that drive to like, and it's, it's, a, it's a love of the sport. Cause if you love the sport, like you don't stop doing it because you're not winning. Like you love it. Like, why would you stop? So I think, you know, that's kind of like an important factor for me now is finding people who are passionate. And then you just want those kids on your team. You don't want impassioned kids on your team that you drag people down. Mm -hmm. Nothing's worse than having those people on your team. It's like, they're not putting the work in. They're not pushing you in the weight room. They're not getting energized for your lift or your throw. I mean, nothing's worse than just like the person who sucks the energy out of the room. Yeah. It only takes a couple of those to like, <laughs> to start feeling it. So yeah, it's like, especially like, you know, where I'm at now where we're going to get a lot of in-state kids, a pretty big team. Mm -hmm. You don't want anybody on that team who doesn't love it. Mm -hmm it'll bring other people down so um so yeah i think that's you know not necessarily always easy to measure yeah um, but it's something i think has become more and more important for me yeah and i think that's a huge point especially in track and field you only get you know again i think of my career 
essentially four big meets, uh, junior and senior year conference and NCAAs. And you have yeah. to be comfortable with that and comfortable in understanding the process of development and a conversation that sticks out between you and me as my freshman year, I was roughly a 15 mid shot putter and a 49 meter discus thrower. And we are at spring break and you just, you look back at me and you go, Noah, I think you're going to be a five time all American someday. And I was just sitting there and I was like, what are you talking about, dude? Like you're at my practice sessions. Like you can't realistically think that, can you? Did I say five? Are you sure? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, are you sure? Yeah. There it goes again. Um, but yeah, I think having that foresight to see like the long, the long con quote unquote, or like the, the long game yeah. of development is so important. And I think for athletes being recruited right now, if you're a coach, if you get that your coach doesn't see that um, in your conversations, um, probably it'd be helpful to look somewhere else. Somebody who's looking for the four-year or the five-year or the 40-year um, at an academic institution like Washington. Um, you know, you're going to have an awesome time, but also have a degree that means something, um, a large mm -hmm. alumni base, and all of those things play into, the, into your decision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, let's kind of close this out here. Um, obviously, you know, had a lot of success at a lot of different places. Um, talked a lot about having kind of core principles um, within the throw. Um, how do you uh, go about kind of choosing the mold between, for example, uh, throwing, gymnastics, jumping, weight room, you know, we only have, you know, in our in-season segments, 20 hours a week. Um, how do you go about deciding um, what's most important when, and is there anything that you feel is completely non-negotiable in development of throwers? <laughs> throwing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if you had to do one thing, you would throw. So, like, I, I'm definitely, like, a volume thrower guy. Like, I like – I like throwing. I think the throwers like throwing. I think that's one thing was kind of like, well, I was kind of gone on that path quite a bit. Um, yeah, it's, it's such a tough question too, because um, I, I don't know if I've found the balance yet, yeah. you know, between how much lifting and how much throwing. I mean, you have very wildly different things. Like think of John Smith where like he lifts twice a week. Yeah but they're all super strong. Right. And then like there were, I know, you see like we lifted five times a week. So like there's two totally different ways of looking at the training. Now when John's like lifts, they just lift. Right. Well, we, we lifted every day after throwing and, and at UCLA, we didn't, we didn't do any work on the weekends. There was no Saturday lift. There was no, you know, Saturday, Sunday throwing in the, in the, um, during the season there'd be like a light lift on Sunday we just kind of go in by ourselves and do it which is like something that wouldn't happen these days because of all the different rules and whatnot but um so yeah I think that's a I think that's a that's a constant kind of balance and I think you know for me I I found a good rhythm with you know we throw slash do some some jumping or or or, or uh, running you know we probably throw two hours a day we do some kind of auxiliary work for half an hour you know, we do hop in the weight room for an hour and a half. Uh, so that's like your typical, like Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, or Monday, Tuesday, Friday, you know, Wednesday is kind of like our recovery day. So we'll do like technical work and do a net. So that's nothing too intense and then do like an hour of gymnastics. So that's like mm -hmm. hour and a half, two hours of throwing and then an hour of gymnastics. And then Thursday, we don't have 
right now we don't have any. So that's kind of like a, our, a throwing day. We just kind of just throw. We do some more auxiliary work. We have a game. We actually play a game sometime on Thursday. It's like spike balls is the most popular thing right now. And, yeah. and we had all we had our our games. And then, you know, I don't know if those games make you better athletes. <laughs> oh, we do them here, though, and they love them. Like, discus golf, that's, med ball, that, tennis. Like, yeah. Some of and, that's kinda, and that's the point is that they enjoy it. They love it. It's something they look forward to. And, um, you know, so I, I think uh, I think that balance is always changing. I think some sometimes your athletes need some more play time, and sometimes they need to lift harder. Um, so I, I don't think there's a formula. I think, generally speaking, more than half your time should be done throwing. Yeah. And then I would say the next, so if you had 20 hours, let's say, you know, 10 to 12 of it's going to be throwing or somehow throw, throw related between technique work or what it might be. Of, of those next eight hours, probably six of them are going to be lifting. Mm-hmm. And the other two are kind of like, you got to figure out like is a little more play time is it going to be gymnastics a little auxiliary work is it is it some film time so i think that's kind of the basic breakdown and but to kind of trying to figure out throughout the entire year how much of this or that i don't think there's and then and it's very athlete different like we talk about javelin throwers like how little some throw and how how much some throw and even with some of my throwers like you know like they can only handle so much work or some people just can't sustain focus for more than 20 throws yeah you know so like now their workout looks different like they're going to do less throwing maybe some more drills you know whatever it might be so um so i think that breakdown starts to become pretty athlete different like how you break down their practices will change as over time because i think again kind of find those things that they enjoy doing and emphasizing that and working that to your advantage you know having them do things they enjoy that help them work on the things you want done so i don't know yeah but i think i think that's a pretty good way to good place to start from yeah. 10 to 12 hours of throwing six to eight lifting. <laughs> i think um you know your commitment to um problem solving as a coach instead of being able to or having to put them in a formula has what has put you in the position that you are now um, as one of the best throws coach in the country um, is being a problem solver. X, you know, A to B doesn't always go to C. Um, it goes all over the place yeah. and you have to be comfortable um, in that process of being willing to go all over the place um, and walk down that path with your athlete. And then, you know, more oftentimes than not, they end up in a, in a really good spot. Yeah. I think, I think you hit the nail on the head, which is, coaching is it's just problem solving it's not having the answers and the exact path that they have to take like if that were the case then anybody could do this successfully just plug them into the system but that's not that's not what it is so it's problem solving for the individual um i think is the most important part of it and then like just accepting you don't have all the answers Mm -hmm. like it's okay not to know and it's okay to like tell an athlete that i mean i'm I'm sure i've told you that i mean is that (laughs) something that yeah. I mean, you, you have to go ahead and like, I don't know, like, let's figure it out. Like, and I think it's okay to, and I think, I think sometimes athletes go, Oh, he didn't, he told me, he didn't know. And it's like, if you're, if your coach always has the right answer, they're, they're probably lying to you. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> because I, I always encounter new new problems with people. Yeah. Like every athlete brings a new problem almost always. And maybe at a certain point when you get 30 or 40 years into this, maybe you don't come across those as often. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I think you're, I mean, even to this day, I know like art, like I said, I talk to art sometimes and he just loves diving in. And like, I remember when Tom Walsh was starting to have success and he was like, look at this, this sweep, man, look what they're doing. You know, the, the girl, the, what's the girl's name from Sweden who throws? Uh, like, Fanny Roos. Danny Roos. I mean, there's someone who kind of breaks the mold a little bit, right? Yeah. She's not your typical 19 meter shot putter. Yeah. So what she, so like, you know, uh, people, things get discovered, things keep developing, you know, a little, and then some of it harkens back to history. Some things that these people are doing back in the fifties and all leaking their way back into now. So I think you always got to be a student. Um, it's okay not know the answer, but that's what problem solving is. A problem comes up that you've never seen before. Let's try and figure it out. And even the same problem for each athlete might be different. You know, getting someone to sweep wide person A is a different task than doing it for person B. Like you might have a different focus or a different um, drill or whatever might that make, makes them do it. And so like the same drill package that made you sweep wide isn't going to help the next person sweep wide. Mm -hmm. And I think when you accept that, it's easier to, to solve the next problem versus like, Here's what you do to solve this problem, and then no, you'll it won't work. Yeah, um, lots of good information. Um, thanks so much for joining. I know uh, a lot of people will definitely enjoy this. A ton of good insight for coaches, athletes, recruits. Um, can't give away all the secrets. Um, I'm gonna hold on to some of those too. Um, so yeah, thanks for joining. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. That was a lot of fun. Yep.